Good morning, Four Corners. What a tremendous blessing it is to be here worshiping our God together and sitting under His Word. You know, that's what we do every time we come to the Bible, is uh, there are many in our day who treat the Bible quite casually, Uh, many who talk of uh, not being uh, people who consider ourselves based on or founded on or built on the Bible. You know, throughout the history of Christianity, the people of God have centered themselves on Scripture. It is the mark of the true church. It's the mark of the people of God going all the way back. And we've seen that in Genesis, which is the series that we're in now. All the way from the beginning, the Word of God forms the basis for the people of God's identity, that there is no identity for God's people apart from his word, and to begin to shape our lives or shape our community of faith in a way that does not saturate itself with the Bible or build itself up on the Bible is destined to failure, failure from God's perspective. So we come now, all of us, to sit under the word of God And we are in Genesis 14. So if you'll go ahead and go there. Genesis chapter 14. We continue our series on Genesis. And we continue to look at the life of Abram. Whose name is later changed to Abraham. It's... It's great when you go through a large book like Genesis because it really is, and this would be a helpful way to think of it if your uh, perseverance is being tested by spending time, 50 chapters uh, through a series, is to think of it as a, 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 a bunch of little series. So we had a series on sort of primeval history, going all the way back before Abram. And then Abram comes on the scene and we're with him. Up, up through 20, chapter 25, and so you could see this as a little series on Abraham. And then we'll go from there to Isaac and Jacob. But then there's that great portion at the end of Genesis that looks at the life of Joseph, which is an incredible study in its own right, a little series there. So we have these little parts of Genesis that are units in their own right. And the unit we're in now is that dealing with Father Abram, or Abraham, the father of The Jewish nation, according to the flesh, according to human descent, according to biological descent, and then the father of the people of faith, that Abram is considered, Abraham is considered the father of faith. And we see this fleshed out in the New Testament as he is the kind of prototypical believer. And that's one of the things, I don't don't know if you've experienced this, this is something I've experienced preaching through even what we've covered so far with Abraham is that he really gives us a picture of the believer. He is the quintessential believer. In all of the Bible, Abraham is the one person who is held up as the typical believer. And so we're getting to see what it looks like, how in in these narratives, not just in, you know, in an epistle like Paul's epistle, you'll get a, a lot of uh, imperatives and a lot of descriptions of, of doctrine. But, but in Genesis, the truth of, of theology sort of unfolds through narrative. And so we get to see faith in action. We get to see faith in its weak moments. We get to see the substance of faith on the ground. And that's what Abraham gives us. So I think in many ways, he helps us see what it looks like to be a believer. What it looks like to follow God on his terms. And what it looks like to stumble and to be picked up by God. Well, the title for today's sermon is The Blessed Man, part one. So today is part one. Next week will be part two. And we're looking at this larger section of chapter 14 all the way to the end, verses 1 to 24. In, in this, this, under this heading, The Blessed Man. But we're going to take it in two parts, verses 1 to 16 this week and verses 17 to 24 next week, where we'll get to talk about this figure, Melchizedek, uh, really needs quite a bit of commentary in his own right. So we can't do all of this in one sermon, so we're going to break it up into two. But I think if we were to give a title to this chapter, I think it would be the blessed or blessed, however you say that, the blessed Man, so let me just take a moment and answer the question, why? Why have I entitled this 
the blessed man. And there are several reasons that I want to give you from the passage itself and from the context. And these are just very basic. There's much substance here that we'll go on to to look at. But on on a very basic level, why am I calling this passage or entitling this the blessed man? The first is the story so far. So if we go back to Genesis 12, we see the beginning of the story of Abram, really the beginning of, at the end of chapter 11. And the story so far gives us this man who is blessed. God makes all these promises to Abram. He heaps up his promises. He blesses him. That's the word. The word blessed or blessing is repeated so many times in those verses, those opening verses of chapter 12. And then we get This story where Abraham goes off into Egypt and he doesn't seek God. We see his independence, his deception, his recklessness. We see the folly of the man, the sin of the man, the feebleness of his faith. But through all of that, we get God's blessing of protection. That God keeps him through that period of time. And then we get, in chapter 13... All of this material blessing. We know this material blessing, or at least the, the abundance of it, led to the separation of Lot and Abram. But we still see that God has blessed him in so many ways. So the first reason I'm calling this passage the blessed man is because of what's come so far, sort of leading up to this blessing, blessing, blessing. The second reason for the title is that the, pass, is that the two passages that sandwich this passage speak of the abundance of God's blessing. So look at chapter 13, verses 14 to 17 really quickly. I want you to see the two pieces of bread in this blessing sandwich of chapter 14. So chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. I will give, I will make, I will give. These are the words of abundant blessing. And then look at the first verse of chapter 15. What does that say? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So in between these two very lofty words of blessing, we get chapter 14. And then finally, there's the words of Melchizedek in chapter 14, verse 19. So look there in the passage itself, verse 19. Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Blessed be Abram. So what we are looking at when we come to this passage is a man who is being portrayed as the quintessential blessed man. He's the quintessential man of faith. He's also to be understood as the quintessential blessed man. So let's go ahead and stand and read our passage, and we'll jump in. Chapter 14. The blessed man. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable. Verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Caterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Caterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Caterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, 
Kiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Ain Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemies took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And here we go. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ashkol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. You can go ahead and take a seat. I I might be wrong on this, but I think this might be one of those passages like a genealogy that you read over pretty quickly. Uh, Or that you stumble through rather quickly trying to pronounce these very strange names. And that would be very natural, I think, very natural. But there is really much here to be gleaned from this portion of chapter 14. And what I want to focus on as we look at Abram the blessed man is I want to see Abram's blessedness in three ways. Three ways. And what we're going to do this morning is very simple. We're just going to walk through each of these ways that we see Abram's blessedness. And then we're going to look at what are the implications for us as believers. So if you'll open up your bulletin there, if you haven't already, you'll see the title, The Blessed Man, Part One. And you'll see these three ways that he is portrayed as blessed. And they are his safety, number one. Number two, his service. And number three, his strength. In each of these, we see the blessed man, or we see Abram as a blessed man. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. And let's pray that he would use his word not to just inform our minds, as though we're just sort of sponges taking in information, but that he would touch the heart, penetrate the heart, and bring lasting Christ-like change to each of us. And some here this morning, maybe you don't know Christ. You're not a Christian. Our prayer is that God will be merciful to you. And that you would call out to him. Ask him for mercy. To change your heart. To save you. To give him. To give you himself. Because he's the treasure. Remember what we read at 15? He's the reward. Let's pray. Father, we humbly bow before your word. We bow under your word before your throne. Father, we know that you speak. You speak to us through the Bible. We do not find your word in the Bible. The Bible is your word. Father, we praise you that you have been so good to us. Yes, Lord, you give us many earthly things. We are a rich people in this country. And not just those considered rich within this country, but compared to those in history and to those around the world, we are a rich people. Father, we know that 
you provide for us in so many different ways. Many of them we take for granted. Many of them we idolize rather than giving you the praise and enjoying them for your glory and giving to others sacrificially. Father, forgive us. But we recognize that all these things are as dung when compared to the treasure of Jesus Christ. So Father, we, we praise you this morning that you have given us Christ. That we have every spiritual blessing in him. Father, that all the treasures of heaven have been poured out into us and will be realized by us in the ages to come. That when we've been there 10,000 years, it will be as nothing. We will be there forever and ever and ever with you, enjoying you in perfect bliss, perfect gladness, treasuring your son. Father, we thank you that this, these things are a reality. And they're a reality as we come to your word this morning. And we pray that you would press them into our hearts. Lord, that you would make it new to us today. As Christians, we become familiarized to the Bible. We become, everything just gets familiar to us, Lord. Our, our relationships in you, our, our Bibles, corporate worship like this is just so familiar. It's so routine, Father, make it fresh today for each of us. Grant us the grace to see you in your majesty, to worship you for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. And Father, for those here this morning who have no clue what I'm praying about right now, it makes no sense. Those here this morning who have no hope but in earthly things, in health, in possessions, in, in happiness, fleeting happiness and cheer, in human beings who get old and die. Father, for those among us, would you show them the truth of your gospel? Would you make Christ known to them today? And would they repent of their sins of their life of sin, a life of rebellion, a life of self-centeredness, a life of idolatry, and turn to you, the living God, and praise you, as Romans 1 says, give you honor and give you thanks. And commit the rest of their lives to you and trust in Jesus Christ's payment for sin on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to justify us before you. Father, would you do this work? It is a great work that only you can do. We ask that you would do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see Abram's blessedness three ways. The first of those is his safety. So let's look at that first. This passage tells us of a large conflict. So that's what's going on when we open up these verses and we hear of all these strangely named kings. That's what's happening. These strangely named places. We've got a large conflict. This is really a political storm. It is a tumultuous time in the area of Canaan, this little strip of land that we call Palestine. Modern day Israel, where modern day Israel is at, this this section of land. This is a political storm going on here, right here in the scene, this place that we've been looking at with Abram over the last several weeks. So just to give you a little bit of a summary of what's going on, there's a coalition of four eastern kings. These are outsiders. These are not people from Canaan. These are eastern kings. They're from modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. We see Shinar, you remember that with Babylon, that the Tower of Babel was in the land of Shinar. So we have a a good idea of where that's at. It's not entirely clear where all of these kings are. But the general uh, view that we should have, I think, is that this is these are powers coming from modern what what would be what is modern day Iran, Iraq and Turkey. And this coalition of four eastern kings 
had subjugated five kings in the area of the Jordan Valley. So the Jordan Valley, we don't have a map, but you, you can even flip to the back of your Bibles now if you, if you have that uh, paper Bible. I know those uh, rarely exist these days, but if you have one of those, you can flip to your map there in the back and you can see the Jordan Valley is that area around the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. So that we have this area of the Jordan Valley, and it's the five kings in this area who have been subjugated by four external kings. And these five kings were paying tribute to one of the members of this eastern coalition for 12 years. So they had been subjugated, and for 12 years they had paid their tribute. But then they decided that they were going to rebel against these Kings And these kings were not having that. And so it results in the four kings invading the Jordan Valley to resubjugate these city-states, which is essentially what they are. They are little local authorities. Each of them has a king, not very large, but they're, they're basically little city-states in their own right. And so these, these four kings come in to resubjugate these five city-states. And in doing so, they sweep through the area, conquering many, many in addition to those five kings. And they ultimately meet and defeat the four rebel kings on a battlefield south of the Dead Sea. So that is what's going on, really, as we read these opening verses. And I think this reminds us of something. And we're meant to be reminded of this. This really takes us back to around the time of Babel. And I think we're meant to see that as we read all of this. In fact, this is the first occurrence of the word war in the Bible, which is interesting. We're meant to kind of go back to Babel here for two reasons. One, all of this conflict and this war, this dominion and this pride, the dominion of the the foreign powers and the pride of the local powers throwing off their masters, those who had subjugated them, the, the dominion, the pride, the war, This brings us back, I think, to what we find right before Babel and about the time of Babel with Nimrod. We also see this with the pride that they have in making a great name for themselves. But we also are reminded as we see this war, we're reminded of the consequence of that pride and rebellion at Babel when God divided them and they began to speak different languages. And so we're reminded of the sin of Babel of this dis- and of this dispersion of the nations, this division of the peoples because of their sin. So this is what's going on, opening of chapter 14. And we remember from last week that Abram and Lot separated and Abram let Lot choose where he wanted to go. You remember that from last week? Lot could choose wherever you want to go, go. So look with me at verses 13, 10 to 11. just want to quickly review that. Things get a little bit heated between Abram and Lot's herdsmen, and they're not getting along. The land cannot accommodate both of them together. And so Abram humbly looks at Lot and says, go wherever you wish. You take, let's separate. That's the solution. You go wherever you would like to go. And then we get these words in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes And saw the Jordan Valley. Mm. It was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Lot looks up and he says, that land right there is going to make for me a great future. I'm going to prosper and flourish in that land over there. And so he chooses for himself the Jordan Valley. Well, it's it's kind of funny and sad that immediately after that, in the narrative, in chapter 13, immediately after that, we get this narrative. Lot's choice, of course, places him right in the middle right in the middle of this massive political storm, this massive conflict. And not only is he in the general area. Remember, he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. That's what we got in chapter 13. He's not just in the general area. He's not just on the outskirts of this 
conflict. He's right in the center of it because at this point we are told that he is living in Sodom, which is crazy. I mean, why did they separate? Because he needed all of this land for his flocks and now he's a city dweller in a wicked city. Now, Lot would have known that these are wicked people. The Canaanites, God will tell Abram, chapter 15, God will tell Abram that the Canaanites will be judged for their evil one day, that God will send his people out and judge them. They were a wicked people, and Lot, who was a worshiper of the true God, should have recognized that, that getting near these cities, getting near these, these centers of, of urban wickedness was a bad idea, but Lot does it Anyway, he goes, pitches his tent as far as Sodom. And now in chapter 14, we read that he is dwelling in Sodom, the very wicked city. But here's what we need to see now. He's dwelling in a city that is one of the key rebel city-states. So he is literally right in the center of this conflict. And so we read in verse 12 that Lot is basically swept away. Poor Lot. I mean, this guy was, he had it all. He had it all. And now... He's just become the plunder of war. Who knows what's going to happen to him? He's thinking in his mind, I'm sure. Who knows what's going to happen to his family? He's been carried off by these outsider kings. But what about Abram? This is important. We're meant, I think, in this passage to contrast Lot and Abram. What about Abram? Well, in contrast to Lot, Abram is living in safety. Look at verse 13. There's a really striking contrast here. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite. Brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. The sense you get is that Abram is just living in perfect peace and stability. He's, he's outside of this conflict. This conflict is not touching him. It's not affecting him. It's not bothering him in any way. And the contrast is, Lot is swept up as the plunder of war. Do you see that? Unlike Lot, Abram is not in the sinful city. Unlike Lot, he is not in the significant conflict. And this is the main idea that I want you to get at this point. As the blessed man, it's very simple. As the blessed man, God is watching over Abram. Ensuring his safety. Why is it that Abram is there in safety and Lot has been carried off in this conflict, this, this global even and local conflict? Why is it? That we have this contrast because he is the blessed man. And here's the question that we need to ask. What does this imply for us as Christians? As we saw earlier in our scripture reading, we are blessed in Christ. In fact, if you were to put up on a board all of the things that define a Christian. All of the things that you would say, okay, let's, let's write them out. What is at the center? What's a defining characteristic of a Christian? At the top of that list, you would have to put the word blessed. Blessed. And we read that earlier from Ephesians. It said we are blessed in Christ with not just some, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then it goes on to say that we are blessed in the beloved. We are the blessed ones of God. Like Abram. God's blessing abides on us. And so we can be confident that God ensures our safety. But hold on a second. What are we to do with this? Does God promise us safety? Does God necessarily give us safety? Well, we know that there were many Christians undoubtedly who were recently affected by Hurricane Florence or Hurricane Michael. We know that there are many Christians who, who die in car accidents. Recently, talking with someone in our church here who had a, a family member who died of a brain aneurysm. This person being a Christian recently 
heard in the news of tragedy, even here around the Atlanta area, of a girl, a, a lady, a woman, young woman who's, who is shot in the morning driving to work, becomes brain dead and then has a head-on collision with another car at 7 o'clock in the morning. Stray bullet, who knows? Tragedy. We know that all around us there are things that happen and that we ourselves have experienced tragedy. We ourselves have experienced what we might consider to be a lack of safety. So what in the world do we mean when we say that we are blessed and part of this means that we are safe? Well, I think sometimes it does mean that God watches over us in ways we don't see. God does not promise us that we will have temporal earthly safety. But I know this, when we get to heaven, I believe that God will, we will know all the ways that God protected us. It it means this, that when we pray with our children, as we're about to go off on a long trip, we say, God, would you protect our car? Would you protect us? Would you keep us safe? Those prayers matter. Those prayers aren't meaningless When we pray with our children at night, Lord, watch over our home tonight as we sleep. Those prayers matter. Lord, bless my marriage. Those prayers matter. Lord, help me keep my job. Those prayers matter. And I think one day we're going to realize all the ways that God did, in fact, keep us temporally, earthly, physically safe. But here's what I want you to see. I think that Abram's physical safety serves as a picture of our spiritual safety. As we see that Abram has been blessed, we see him being being safe physically. We're told that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I think we are to understand that Abram's blessedness in his safety is a picture, an earthly temporal picture of our blessedness, our safety in Christ. What in the world do I mean by this? Well, Jude, Jude 1 says this. Jude says this at the very beginning of his letter. You can't miss these little theological nuggets in the greetings. They're so good. To those who are called, that's a nugget, beloved In God the Father, that's also a nugget. But then here's the one I want you to see. And kept for Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Every Christian is by the power of God being kept, guarded to give to Christ as his bride. That all Christians constitute together collectively the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any of us who, who is married, any of us who has seen a wedding knows what it is like when the, the groom-to-be stands and watches his bride come down the center aisle. That is what it will be like on the day that the Father presents the bride of Christ, the church, To the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. We are kept for Jesus Christ. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Afflictions don't really give us the sense of safety. Afflictions, that's that's a tough word. But it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 22, it goes on to say, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And here I want to give you one of my personal favorites to illustrate this point that we are blessed and therefore safe. And what does that safety mean? Romans 8, 35 to 37. Beautiful passage of scripture. Verse 35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then listen to all these words that denote a lack of safety. The words I'm about to give you are are not safe. So he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sword means death. He goes on to say in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So even in the midst of no safety, we are safe. Even in the midst of the the least safety 
in this life. Death itself. We are safe in the love of Christ. Kept by God to give to Christ as his bride. So what's the sum of this? To be blessed like Abram is to be safe. And as we consider our safety, we consider that God will bring us safely home and God guards our good. That's what Romans 8, 28 is saying. That God works things for our good to those who love him. He works all things for our good. God is a a guard of our good. This means that any lack of safety we experience in this life should be seen by the blessed one. Hear this, because some of us don't feel safe right now. Any lack of safety that we experience in this life should be seen as the very means that God is using to keep you safe. Our trials, our sufferings, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger or sword. God is keeping you safe through your lack of safety. So we see Abram's blessedness in his physical circumstances. But we also see this in his actions. And that turns us to our second point, his service. So we see his blessedness in his, in his safety. But we also see his blessedness in his service. So if we ask the basic question, what is going on in this passage? What happens in this passage? I think the, the answer would be the heading given by the ESV editors. So the ESV translation committee, the ESV editors have given this heading for these verses. Verses 1 to 16, very simply put, Abram rescues Lot. Yes, that is what's going on in these verses. Abram comes to the aid of his nephew Lot. He serves him by saving him. Here Abram becomes a servant to Lot. And he does this immediately. It's incredible. When he hears of Lot's plight, he springs into action. Look at verse 14. There's the report. And then verse 14. When Abram heard this, heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. What does it say he did? Immediately. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Boom. He doesn't take a a moment to reflect. He's just on it immediately. Courage. No no reluctancy. Doing his duty, but doing it with a heart that wants to do it. To save his kinsmen, Lot. And the end result is what we find in verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram rescues Lot. Abram serves Lot. Now, last week, we saw something pretty incredible about Abram's character. We saw him giving freely. And this week, we see him serving freely. And both of these are costly. So last week, in chapter 13, we, we saw that Abram renounces his land claim and status to give generously to Lot. Abram was the patriarch of the family. If anybody should have the choice of the best land, it should have been Abram. But he gives Lot the free choice. He, he generously gives it over to Lot to choose to go wherever he would please. Giving up, letting go. Letting go of his land claim and his status. Giving generously. And then here in chapter 14, he renounces his safety to save Lot. He renounces his status. He renounces his land claim. He renounces his safety. This is important. We have to see Abram's character. Abram's character is very important because remember this. He's the prototypical believer, meaning that you should expect to see the character of faith coming out of him. And that's what we're seeing. One uh, pastor commentator that I particularly appreciate, and you've heard me um, quote him or cite him a number of times for various series that we've done, is Kent Hughes, pastor at I believe it was College Church in Wheaton for many years. And uh, he is uh, just a, a good commentator of Scripture. He's so faithful to the text. And I appreciate his reflections on God's Word. But when you come to, no, no but, just I'll lay it out there. 
When you come to his treatment of the last passage and this passage, he entitles the the passage from last week, Magnanimous Faith or Big Hearted Faith. And this week's passage, he entitles it Magnanimous Living. And here's what he says about the connection between the two. The story of Abram's rescue of Lot provides us with an instructive sequel to chapter 13 as we see Abram, the man of faith, living magnanimously in a sinful, violent world as he trusts in God. In other words, let me say it this way. All of this self-giving, that's what we're seeing from Abram. We're seeing self-giving. All of this self-giving action on the part of Abram grows out of his faith. We must see that. Last week, we saw his faith in action as he called on the name of the Lord, as he built the altar to God, as he gave up freely, trusting that God would take care of his future. His confidence in God enables him to put his future on the line. And that's what we're going to see when we come to that well-known passage in chapter 22. Do you remember the passage where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son? I remember uh, reading that to our son Jake, and he was like, I don't really like that one. <laughs> of course not. That sounds weird to a kid. You've got to give lots of explanation because they think, is this, is this what this whole Christianity thing's all about? I mean, I don't know if I like that. I'm a son. Uh, but we will get to that passage when we look at that. But the one thing that we need to see, and, and I didn't really see this. I didn't really see this clearly until this week as I was preparing for this sermon. But that's exactly what's happening. What we're seeing now Get this, what we saw last week, him letting go of his future, what we see this week, him letting go of his future, putting his safety on the line, is exactly what happens in Genesis 22. Because what does he do? Everything, is, everything banks on this son. Isaac is the son of promise. God has finally given him Isaac in his old age. His barren elderly wife has given birth to a son, Isaac. And God says, I want you to sacrifice him. All of Abram's future. What we looked at last week, what we looked at this week is is just small potatoes. That's nothing. All of Abram's future by that point is bound up in the life of this son. And what does he do? He says, okay, God. See, that makes sense more when you go through this. His future, he's let go of it because he knows that God's got it. And in Hebrews, we learn that he believed that God would even raise his son from the dead. If he sacrificed him, God would raise him from the dead. Why? Because he knew God was faithful. He knew that God had his future. He knew that God would take care of bringing these promises to fruition. So all of this self-giving action on the part of Abram grows out of his faith. And here's one of the things I think we need to see by way of application for us. Faith is the powerhouse for service. Why is he willing to renounce what is his? Why is he willing to give up his safety to go and, and save his nephew Lot? It's because he has this powerhouse of faith undergirding everything that he's doing. Now, I want to draw your attention to our vision statement as a church. This is really important. There is a logic to our vision statement. These aren't just four cool ideas or, or, or helpful Christian ideas that we put on a piece of paper. There is a logic to that vision statement. What it says is that we are building on exposition. That means we're building on the Bible. We are centering on Christ. We're dying in community and we're serving on mission. There's a logic to that. As you build up from the Bible and as you center on Christ, what happens? Your faith grows. How does faith grow? Subjective faith grows, listen, as the object of faith grows. As the object of faith grows, as God becomes big, large, beautiful, glorious, powerful, a treasure, what happens in the heart? You trust him. You begin to know him as he is in the Bible, in Christ. And you believe And you believe, and you believe, and you believe. And then you go out and you die to yourself and you serve others. That's what we see. You know, we oftentimes talk about being inward or outward focused. And I think 
It is a false dichotomy in many ways, and I say, I've said this many times. We must be inward focused in the sense that we are faith building here. What are we doing here? We're building faith. And that's an inward focused thing. We can't just get out there and start getting busy, and, and that's it. And that's what, we're, that's what we're about. We're about outreach. We're about being busy out there. No, we're here to build faith in the people of God. And as faith is built up in the people of God, then the powerhouse for service, we see it with Abraham, he's an illustration, the powerhouse for service is put firmly in place. But let me say this, on the other side of things, there is the danger of becoming a mere sponge. And I credit this idea to one of our elders, Walt Sellers, said this many times that, We can't just come to church, come to be with the people of God and just be sponges where we're just soaking in for ourselves. Just me and God, my faith, I'm growing. We're just sponges. Because what does the vision statement say, which I think reflects what we see here with Abraham? We we don't just build on exposition and center on Christ and stop. We die to ourselves and serve on mission. So you have to go the whole way. There's a logic to it. And when we are really growing in faith, we will grow in faith. Service. So don't be too busy without being focused on growing your faith, but don't be a mere sponge. Just soaking in sermons or soaking in gospel community group time. Serve. This faith filled service is what points to Abram's blessedness. Now, hear this it is not merely or primarily his possessions or his safety that prove he is blessed. When we think of people being blessed, and this is our materialistic culture, I guarantee you this is the first thing that comes to our mind. If someone says, blessed, immediately we think about things or experiences or feelings or, or health. That, that's just natural for us because we, we are like, this is our culture. This is a self-fulfillment worshiping culture. Just as godless as, as a tribe in Africa that worships the moon. We worship ourselves. We worship our stuff. So the first thing that comes to our mind is these physical blessings, are these physical blessings. But I want you to see it's not primarily or merely these things. It is the quality of his life. It is his character. It is the moral fiber of his soul. That is what shows Abram to be blessed. And we know this from the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he started out, blessed are those. He did not say, he did not list a series of things. What did he list? He listed a series of characteristics, of qualities of the soul. That's what makes a person blessed or happy in the true, deeply philosophical sense of the word happy. That is what makes a person blessed This heart, this life is a blessing from God. And when we come to Galatians 3, 9, the Apostle Paul says this. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram or Abraham, the man of faith. So here's what we need to see for ourselves. As those who are blessed in Christ, blessed like Abram, we are freed up and empowered to put our lives on the line for other people. Just as Abram was. We are getting a picture of who we are here as believers, as people of faith, people who are blessed with faith. We're getting a picture here with Abram of what the Christian life looks like. It is a life of faith that breeds service. It's a life of faith that gives up the future, lets go of the future, surrenders it to God, and just expends ourselves for the good of other people. That's the blessed life. Maybe you would say your life is not blessed, you don't feel blessed or whatever, Maybe the problem is that you are consumed with yourself. Consumed with self. A final thing to consider at this point, and I love this. In courageously putting his life on the line to save Lot, Abram prefigures his seed. Remember, God has promised a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush Satan's head, undo the fall, who will save mankind. God promises that this seed now is going to be the seed of Abraham. Abram does for Lot what Christ has done for us. We get a picture here of enslavement. 
to sin. Lot is like us. He's on the fringe. He's outside of the blessing. He's held captive. We are held captive by sin and death and hell. And Christ, the seed of Abraham, comes to us. He rescues us. He acts immediately. He comes with initiative. Remember, as Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, as he, as he walks up to those people who have come to arrest him, he does it with courage. Why does he go to the cross? Why does he suffer Roman scourging? To rescue us. The seed of Abram rescues all of us who believe. And in this way, Abram is a picture of Christ. So we've seen Abram's blessedness and his safety and in his service. And now we turn, as we finish up this morning, to his strength. His strength. So we recognize the basic fact that Abram rescues Lot. But now we need to dig into the details of that rescue mission A little bit more. And here I'll draw your attention. We'll go through this. Verses 13 to 16. I won't read it all right now. But we'll look at little bits of it here in a moment. Everywhere we look in these verses. We see Abram's strength. And I think we can pinpoint at least four aspects. As we finish up today. Four aspects of Abram's strength. So here they are. We see that he has support. He has soldiers. He has skills and he has success. Those four aspects of his strength. So let's look at each of those. First, his support. He has allies. Verse 13 says, He was living, in the, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. You know what that tells us? That God has given this foreigner, Abram, favor in the eyes of the people. That he lives around. He's, he's given, God has given him favor in the eyes of his neighbors. So much so that they have become his allies. This reminds us, I think, of Joseph. You know, most amazing story of how God can put favor in some, can, can make someone favorable towards you. Show you favor. We see with Joseph that he has shown favor by just about everyone he runs into in Egypt. So we see that God has given him support. Secondly, we see that he has soldiers. In verse 14, when Abram heard, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. We haven't really been, been reading all the ins and outs of what's going on on the ground with Abram, but what we know by this point is that he has 318 trained men living in his house. This is a size, not in the same tent, surely. But living among his household, this is a sizable number of servants who have been trained to fight. And we know that this is at least somewhat sizable because you know the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. God whittles down the army of Gideon from 32,000 to 300 men. Now 300 men because God wants to be glorified in it, wants to show that, that he is made strong in human weakness. But it's still 300 men. So it is a sizable number to some degree. And they are loyal men. The text says they are born in his house. So he's got these trained, loyal servants. This is part of his strength. Then we see his skills. He has has some military prowess here. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night. A surprise attack on multiple sides. You know, was Abram a general? I mean, kind of. He's kind of functioning like a general here. But was he trained in in military arts? It doesn't appear so. But God has given him a basic skill, a basic ability to plan and strategize a military defeat. So that he can rescue Lot. We see support soldier skills. And then finally we see success. His success can be summed up with the three verbs in verses 15 to 16. Defeated, pursued, brought back. He did these three things. He defeated them, he pursued them, and then he brought back Lot. And the people and the possessions. Let me look at each of these. Defeated. Here's what's fascinating about this. He defeated with 318 men. What four kings, five kings with their armies could not defeat. Now this is incredible. He also 
defeated a formidable force that had defeated giants. Remember back in verse 5, we read about the Rephaim. You probably just skimmed right over that. But the Rephaim are, are talked about throughout the Bible. The, Rephi, the Rephaim are giants. They're people who are considered very, very tall. And so we, we know that this force has not only defeated all of these kings, but it has also defeated giants. And yet Abram with 318 men is able to defeat them. Or at least defeat the tail end of this group that has Lot captured. He pursued them, verse 14, went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is the northern boundary of the promised land. Verse 15, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, out of the promised land. Here's what you need to see here. Abram is depicted as a king of the land, pushing out the foreign powers to the outskirts of the promised land. Abram is depicted as though he is already king of this land. He's pushing out these forces as far as the boundaries of the promised land. And then, of course, brought back. The mission itself was successful. He rescued Lot. We don't know how much these allies helped him. In verse 15, it says that he and his servants did it. So it suggests that there was limited help from the allies. We don't know how much they helped him. But then in verse 24, Abram does say, let Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre take their share. So some help from these allies, but nonetheless, we are meant to see that Abram with just 318 men in his own household, not professional soldiers, servants who had been trained, defeats, pushes out, and re-takes hold of Lot, bringing him back home. All of this highlights Abram's reason for success. And we find that with the words of Melchizedek. Look down at verses 19 to 20. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high. And listen to these words, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Yes, Abram was strong, but it was God's blessing. It was God's providence. It was God's power that gave Abram success. Zechariah 4, 6 says it best. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So you know who needs to hear this? Well, first, the Israelites who are encamped in the wilderness, who are about to go into the promised land. And here they are reading that Father Abraham, with 318 men, defeated this massive army, or at least defeated was able to bring back Lot. Here they are about to go into the promised land to fight many established people. And God is saying, I am with you. The victory is mine. And that is exactly what he's saying to us Christians. We are strong. We are strong. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize you're strong? I think sometimes as Christians, we live a defeated kind of life with a defeated mindset. Do you realize, Christian, how strong you are as a blessed one of God? You are a mighty, mighty force in the hand of the Lord. Mighty in Christ. Not pushed over, a weakling, a nothing, a beat down person. In Christ, we are strong. We need to hear this over and over again, lest in our weakness we justify our sin and think, woe is me, I just can't do better. In Christ we can. We are strong in Christ, but only in him. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I want to submit this to you before we pray. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? I think all of us would say, yes, it means that we pray. It means that we rely on the Lord and, and we have to rely on him and not ourselves. And that's absolutely the case. But I want, to, I want to give to you one other thing that I think this means. It means that as Christian people living in this world, that we take advantage of his means of grace. In other words, the picture that we have of Abraham winning this victory is not God coming down on a chariot of fire with a flaming sword and blasting this, this, this enemy group, of this coalition, and then grabbing Lot and giving him to Abraham. Just falls right in his lap. 
Lot doesn't fall in Abraham's lap. He has to go get him. He has to utilize the resources, the strength that God has given him. And here's the thing. Sometimes we're just, we, we feel weak because we're just sitting around waiting on God to do something, to drop something in our lap. And all the while, God is saying, I've given you the means. I've given you the means of grace. How many times have you been in a tough spot and someone has come to you out of the blue and said, you need to read this book? And you don't do it. You just get too busy. Eh, maybe that book was God's means for changing that, that mindset you had. Maybe that was God's remedy for you at that time. Abram took advantage of the means that God gave him, and in that he was strong. Will we be strong? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your gifts. We praise you for the gift of a, a Christ-like character. We know, Father, we are We are weak and undone in many ways. Father, we do not exhibit the characteristics of Christ perfectly at all, and frequently we are quite the opposite, Lord. We ask your forgiveness for that. But we pray, God, that you would strengthen us in the inner man, that you would make us strong in character, that you would convince us of our safety in Christ. And Father, that you would help us to be strong against the flesh, the world, and the devil, and not to topple over like weaklings, like leaves in the breeze, but to recognize we are not chaff, but we are like trees planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. We are the blessed ones of God. Father, help us see who we are. Help us embrace this and fight in Christ's strength for your glory and the good of other people. In Jesus' name, amen.